0: Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burrus. And our guest today is Alex Narasta. He's the Director of Immigration Studies at the Cato Institute's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, and the co-author, with Benjamin Powell, of Wretched Refuse, The Political Economy of Immigration and Institutions. Welcome back to Free Thoughts, Alex.
1: Thanks a bunch for having me, guys.
0: You make an interesting claim in the book about the burden of proof when it comes to immigration. You write, the starting point for crafting policy should begin with a baseline presumption of free trade and free immigration. Why start with the assumption of openness?
1: Well, I think if I, you know, as a libertarian, I need to start with the assumption uh, that government actions, I think, should be the ones that are justified. And if there is no reason for a government action there's no reason to take it and the action needs to be pretty good so i mean my base assumption i think for just about everything is that the the government wants to do something it needs to justify that action while inaction should be the default for just about everything and it's basically the same justification i apply you know to everything i run in my life which is you know i i don't do a whole lot <laughs> Of actions for things that, unless unless they require my action, so it's sort of I think a general principle for uh, deciding whether the state or really anybody should do something is you need to have a, re- a good reason to act and a, a yeah a good reason to act.
2: But as an economist, too, there's another presumption about voluntary trade and interaction. Yeah,
1: that's right. See, so,
2: but the baseline of economics: if you don't think voluntary trade benefits both, then you can't really do economics.
1: That's right. So it's sort of this, this idea that like voluntary mutually beneficial or voluntary exchanges are presumed to be mutually beneficial and positive sum. So values are subjective, uh, they're marginal, and our values are revealed by our actions. And so we, it's a really safe assumption that people who act, who do things, uh, do it because they think it's in their own personal benefit. And, you know, people make mistakes, you know, it's not perfect. Uh, But it's a much better way of judging whether an action is worth it or not, whether it's efficient or not, than anything else.
2: On that point, I just want to – something – the way you've said this in the past, and I think it's a good way of putting it in the context here. um, How are immigration restrictions restrictions on Native Americans or or people who live within borders? Because that's a point that you make, which I think is not often pointed out.
1: Right. So native-born Americans want to hire, they want to sell to, they want to rent to, they want to uh, marry immigrants, people overseas. And so any restriction on immigrants coming here to engage in these types of exchanges with native-born Americans, of course, restricts the immigrant, but it's also a restriction on what native-born Americans can do. So if I own property and I want to rent out to people, the fact that immigration laws prevent me from renting out to about 95% of the world's population, unless they get explicit government permission, is something that severely limits my ability to contract and to use my property as I see fit. And so you can explain—you know—you can expand that to everything else, right, to, to uh, employment relationships, to marriage, to any kind of personal relationship. Uh, to even something as simple as you know buying and selling an apple at the corner store. Uh, the government severely limits the ability of Native-born Americans to deal with foreigners, and thus every immigration restriction is also a restriction on what Native-born Americans can do.
0: And we know that economic freedom, that, that allowing people to make the choices you just told us were off the table for, for most Americans, leads to economic growth, leads to greater wealth. So I'm just curious – if we went fully open in terms of immigration or, or close to it, what kind of economic impact are we potentially talking about?
1: So we're talking about a very large potential impact. Uh, economist Michael Clemens at the Center for Global Development wrote a very influential paper in 2011 called a Trillion Dollar Bills on the Sidewalk. And he estimates that the global economic benefit From expanding, basically going to open borders or something close to it would be to increase GDP around the world. So gross world product by 50 to 150%, which would be an annual figure, which means, you know, global world product is somewhere around uh, 80 to 90 trillion dollars. So you're talking about, uh, you know, 40, 45 up to, you know, almost 150. Bill a trillion dollars of additional global output each year uh, by having something close to open borders, and that's the reason why is because immigrants are in countries with bad institutions where they're unproductive, and by allowing them to move to countries like the United States where there are better economic institutions, there's more economic freedom. It increases their productivity, increases their wages as a result because their productivity goes up, and the result of increased productivity is more goods and services being made, which increases the material prosperity. Of the world. And so that is sort of the base assumption of what would happen uh, globally if there were free immigration. And most of those gains uh, would go to the immigrants, of course. Uh, Some would go to native born Americans and other people in rich countries, but they would also be concentrated geographically in the countries where these people would move. So, primarily the United States, Western Europe, and elsewhere would get the main economic benefits of a massive flow of people under such a large system.
0: Is that a problem though or at least something that we should worry about because if if we open up immigration, yes, the United States and these places where people want to move may see tremendous benefits. But is it going to come at the cost of driving people in third world countries or unstable countries or the kinds of countries that people leave into even greater poverty?
1: So there's some good research about this. I mean, the main reason why these countries are poor in other parts of the world is because their institutions are worse than ours. And you have to think, why would a government want to improve the quality of, say, legal and economic institutions? And it turns out one of the big reasons why is to keep people in the country. Because if everybody leaves – and all of a sudden the government doesn't have any taxpayers, it doesn't have anybody to fund the, the government to, to support the uh, you know to support the autocrats <laughs> who are there. So by allowing so many people to leave and go to other better countries, what it does is it gives an incentive all of a sudden for politicians in these countries to actually support reforming laws in a way that will incentivize people to leave. Um, you know, they they could create a new Berlin Wall. They could do something like that, but in the long run, those aren't very effective. Uh, and we see this around the world. We see that countries that are able to send out a lot of immigrants for various reasons, like Mexico, some countries in, in Africa and Asia, who have sent large numbers of immigrants to Europe, the United States, the country, other countries in East Asia is they do typically improve the quality of their economic institutions as a result. So the more immigration that occurs, the more they are interested in improving the quality of these laws so that people will actually stay. So in a way, what this does is sort of take the incentives, uh, the public choice incentives of government agents, of politicians and bureaucrats, It makes them actually want to improve the quality of institutions because they want to maintain just at least some people staying in their countries who will pay taxes. I mean, if you think about it, I think a country like Haiti, for instance, which is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, one of the poorest in the world – if the U.S. had a free immigration policy with Haiti, you know, I would suspect that 90% plus of that population of that island would come to the United States um, unless the government there were to create some policies to make it attractive for people to stay. So um, I, th- I think that that would be the situation that would be faced by a lot of countries around the world as they would become, in the words of Lant Pritchett, zombie countries which is basically entirely depopulated of people and uh, because their people have gone on to bigger and better things in other countries.
2: But of course, this raises the question that, that your book deals with extensively and kind of hits everyone's mind when they hear this. Isn't one of the reasons, or at least a contributing factor to Haiti's lack of good institutions is Haitian culture and history uh, and, and attitudes that the people have, not even you know necessarily being... Uh, some sort of Western chauvinist because there are different ways of doing things. Sometimes you have informal economies. Sometimes you have formal economies. So some countries, they're used to informal ways of driving. I mean, driving is a great example, right? We drive very formally in America, according to rules, go to South Asia or Eastern Europe, and you'll find very quickly that people drive very differently. And the reason they do that is because of who they are. So if they all come here, they – if, I mean, let's just take that. Dri- let's just take driving as an example. If, I mean, we can get bigger, but like if you had an influx of 11 million, that's why I looked at the population of Haitians, come to you know a few cities in America, it would have to change things about the culture there. I mean, that just seems to be obvious and it could be for the worse.
1: Yeah. That's sort of the question that we, we try to deal with. I think culture, um, culture matters in some sense, but you also have to realize that our institutions—they're—they're they're collective, you know—they're ontologically collective in the sense that I'm a supporter of free markets and individual liberty. If I move to Cuba, um, it doesn't increase the amount of support of free markets or individual liberty in Cuba just because one more person with those opinions or characteristics moves there. I'm sort of going to be able to fit in to the institutions that are already in Cuba um, already. So what happens generally is there's these things called founder effects which is the founders of institutions, the people who sort of uh, either create them or enshrine them in law. You know, they're already created through spontaneous order, but they might be enshrined in law by some of the first people who are in an area. Uh, That has enormous sort of stickiness and lasting power. So let's say Haitians who have different norms about driving come to the United States in large numbers. Um, You know, there might be a bit of a learning curve, but let's say, you know, 10,000 people a week Come to you know Miami uh, from Haiti over the course of several years. Um, you know those ten thousand people are not all of a sudden going to upend all the driving norms in that state. They're going to slowly assimilate, or maybe very rapidly assimilate in terms of driving to the norms of driving in Miami. And that's because there are institutions which are the rules of the game that plus the enforcement measures that are going to basically force them to follow those rules. Because if you're the only guy in Miami driving on the left-hand side of the road, you're not going to be driving very long. Um, you know, you're know, you probably going to be driving for about 10 minutes before you, uh, maximum before you get in a serious accident. And you're going to adjust and you're going to learn. And it's sort of similar uh, for, for other habits and actions, everything from acceptable social conduct to economic exchange to how you sign contracts. People are fairly malleable in these ways. You know, culture is not something that's designed uh, or not inherently genetic or anything like that. It's not genetic. It's sort of the uh, practice, the modes that are most effective that people have developed over time to deal with situations. Sort of in the words of Douglas North, culture is the partial solutions to the frequently encountered problems of the past. And when people realize that those problems have changed – Uh, culture changes quite dramatically, quite radically, and in many cases, quite quickly. So in terms of like driving on the right side of the road, um, that is a, you know, versus having basically no driving rules. That's something that people very quickly learn in a new environment because the benefits of doing so are so high.
0: But those things have an immediate feedback loop. I mean, driving on the wrong side of the road has the obvious one of, you're going to get either arrested or killed. And it's going to happen pretty quickly. But and and that if you move 10,000 people to Miami, those 10,000 people are going to have to, when it comes to driving, interact with other people in Miami on a pretty regular basis because people are driving all over the roads in Miami all the time. But what about things like, political beliefs values ideological positions where on the one hand there isn't a feedback loop right like you can you can vote for anything and the cost to you is going to be zero and where immigrants it's not like immigrants tend to come into an area and just disperse evenly throughout it they they cluster we have you know a Every day when the Cato office was still open, I walked through Chinatown, you know, like that, that's a common occurrence. And so if you're simply around other people who have the same beliefs and values you did in the old country, you're going to be able to maintain them easier, but now you're going to be a voting block,
1: Right. And this is something, you know, we we have a sort of a chapter dealing with this in the book. It's not just that it's sort of random people from these countries who are selected to come here, right? It's self-selection. And so the people who are tend to be those who self-select are those who are more cosmopolitan, uh, more open to changing circumstances, who are sort of okay with being away from the culture they grew up with in search of opportunities. So it's sort of a more classically liberal cosmopolitan group of people than ones that sort of represent the average in a lot of these poor countries. Around the world, uh, one of the other things is, in a lot of ways, they also immigrants, and I think we all do this. Like I'm from California, so I compare the institutions in my home state in my home state of California uh, to that of Virginia, where I live now. And so, by comparison, I think Virginia's institutions are, are generally a lot better than California's, and I appreciate that. And a lot of immigrants sort of implicitly compare the institutions of the United States to those of their home countries. And they decide generally that the institutions here are a lot better. So you take a look at polls that are done of trust that immigrants have in specific American institutions, right? They have trust, uh, much higher trust in Congress, in the Supreme Court, uh, in the executive branch, in American business and even in big business than native-born Americans do. And so it makes them sort of, in a way, uh, a sort of lowercase c conservative voting block and that they tend to support these things a lot more because you can see sort of right off the bat that they are, uh, you know, that they're that they're better here, the lack of corruption, you know, relative to other places. And people seem to sort of get into that mode of supporting them a lot more rapidly than, say, native-born Americans do. Now, I, as a libertarian, I realize that the, the, the humor in that, right, like, Praising immigrants for having more trust in Congress, for instance, is something uh, absurd. And I'd like to joke that perhaps that's because they haven't had as much experience as we had yet. Um, But we also haven't had experience with the institutions in their home countries, which are generally much worse across the board. So a lot of the sort of adaptation to American values, American norms, you know, they they might be in their heart of hearts, uh, support socialism or the bad institutions, but when it comes to seeing sort of the world around them uh, and to seeing the institutions as they behave, they tend to form very rapidly opinions that are, at least in terms of trust of these institutions, um, higher and more trusting than that of native-born Americans.
2: On this question of self-selection, which is a point that I make a lot and I think is one of the most misunderstood Concepts in immigration that I think a lot of people who are against immigration think that, say, when you say, let's have a bunch of Iranians come to your, your, uh, your one part of your family, a bunch of Iranians come to the United States, and they think of oh, it no, as oh, no, not the Iranians. Yeah, 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 but they, exactly. <laughs> no, perish the thought. Um, and his wife, too. So, but, um, but they think of it as like a, as a random, as a sample of a representative sample of Iranians right? That, that was like the average Iranian, I don't want to be an American. But is of course, it's not. It's the ones who want to leave Iran, uh, because they don't like the kind of policies in Iran. So and that's true across the board. But when we analyze it that way, does it matter how difficult it is to get here? Not even in terms of, I mean, possibly in terms of law, but even just physically, like getting to America in night 1700 was very difficult. So the people who chose to come here were obviously highly motivated to make it in america um and the immigration system was open so they were highly motivated so so and then if you think about travel costs now or or middle eastern uh uh arabs going to europe it's not as far they can go back easily um and so maybe something we should be concerned with is is how difficult it is we'll create that self-selection mechanism to work better and get a better quality of immigrant
1: so I think that that's interesting. I think there's two, there's two responses to that. One is because it's so much easier to go back and forth, that means it's not like a one-way trip necessarily. So you're going to have a lot of people who may not be that interested in assimilating, say, into French culture if they're from Algeria. Uh, but it also means that uh, French ha- France has to be less worried about that because a lot of those who want to remain Algerian uh, go back to Algeria after working and saving money in France for a while. So there's a lot of this sort of back and forth. During the late 19th century, uh, a majority of Italian immigrants, for instance, to the United States uh, went back to Italy. They were called birds of passage because they come for one year, go back, come another year, go back. And those, and are my, those are my
2: people. And, and yeah, some those of are your did. people we're making <laughs> yeah. fun of now.
1: Uh, and, and, and that was very common. And, and prior to the United States uh, vastly increasing border security along the border – uh, with Mexico in the 1980s, uh, it was around 80% of Mexicans went back um, to Mexico because they, they didn't want to settle here. They came up to work and they went back and forth. And so by increasing border security, we actually had the effect of locking them in because it raised the price of going back and forth. So I think what you'd see in, in this world is we, we think of immigration as sort of one way and permanent. But in this type of world, I think immigration would be um, – there would be a lot more of it, but a lot of it would also be temporary. And that people go back and forth, and that just is easier in the modern world. The other thing, and this is, I think, especially important for Americans and and in English-speaking countries, is the amount of pre-assimilation that occurs. So American uh, movies, culture, television, internet norms, language, everything uh, related to entertainment and culture are really dominant uh, around the world and increasingly so. And so a lot of immigrants just know more about the United States before they come nowadays uh, than they did like 100 or 200 years ago. So they're already a lot closer to the American norms in terms of their support for things like democratic government, uh, the role of women in society, uh, their opinions about, say, how homosexuality is totally acceptable. Um, You know, they're just a lot closer than they were say, in like 1850, right? Like a Mexican immigrant today from Guadalajara has a lot less to learn about American culture than an Irish immigrant in 1840 does.
0: A lot of your book, a lot of the the case against the new economic case against immigration that you're pushing back on is the story of productivity. What are we talking about when we talk about productivity at at a national level and how are we measuring it?
1: So economists have a lot of different ways of measuring productivity. And the main one uh, that we're talking about in this book is that if you take sort of a native born American, let's say uh, uh, somebody with a high school degree, And in the United States, let's say that they earn like $40,000 a year on average, and you put them into a place like Haiti, all of a sudden their income is going to drop to something like a few thousand dollars a year. You haven't changed anything about that person. You've just changed where they are working and living. And the main reason why there's that difference is that in the United States, there's a lot of capital, which are the machines that we use to make things. There's a lot of people have made huge investments in their human capital, that is their education and other productive capabilities. People have invested the time in building firms and managing them effectively. And that's because there is just a much smaller chance that criminals or the government, and they're often the same, but criminals or the government uh, will steal them. So people can make these wise investments in the United States to increase productivity. They increase the amount of stuff that you can make per unit of input. And as we know from economics, the productivity of the worker uh, is basically determines the wage that that worker is going to have. So a worker in Haiti is just not that productive. They can't make very many things because there's not very many machines there. There's not much capital. Nobody's made the investments because there's no reason to because the government can take everything. But in the United States, that's not the case. It's a lot better than that. So in the United States, you know, per person, Uh, Even controlling for education, controlling for all the physical characteristics of the individual involved uh, can produce a lot more goods and services with many fewer inputs and as a result, be a lot wealthier. And uh, the theory that is, I mean, there's many theories about why that's true in a place like the United States and not in a place like Haiti. One of the dominant ones is known as new institutional economics. Uh, It's a theory developed by Doug North and others where basically the incentives created by a private property system, by freedom of contract, by a lower level of government intervention in the economy, incentivize people to make these wise investments in themselves in the economy that increases productivity. And over time increases the standard of living uh, in a country. And the fear is that, you know, immigrants come from countries where they don't have these institutions. So maybe if enough of them come in enough numbers, They'll bring some of these bad ideas with them and sort of undermine our productivity here.
2: On that question about speed, uh, it seems clear that, I mean, we're kind of hypothesizing here. Like, right? I mean, you can name parts where huge amounts of people moved to a place and that created huge problems. Uh, so, for example, the gold rushes. Uh, of California, if you were living in California at the time, or Alaska. Also, a huge amount of young men, so crime problems, um, just trying to get services problems, not having the infrastructure. We saw similar things happen in North Dakota with the fracking boom. You had towns go from 3,000 to 30,000 in so quick of time that it had law enforcement, infrastructural problems. You have very extreme examples like the case in Wild Wild Country, which is a Netflix documentary about a huge group of Cultists, uh, Rashnishi moving into a county in Oregon and basically taking it over, and the people there seem to have a justifiable grievance that their entire town, you know, their local coffee shop turned into like a wheatgrass emporium or something. That they those are all problems. So those are concerns. But even on a broader level, so I want you to address those. Uh, but then also the second level, you know, this is all qualitative stuff. Do we have any examples where we've studied? Mass movements of people and seeing what actually happened.
1: Yeah, so those are mostly examples of immigrants affecting either the local culture in terms of like the wheatgrass emporium, or you know just due to the fact that there's an increase in the population of young men, you have a, a surge of crime, and you know some of these fracking towns in, uh, in North Dakota. Sort of what I'm what I'm talking about in this book is sort of a more fundamental change which would be that immigrants move into a lot of areas and hypothetically say just fundamentally change the rules of private property. So all of a sudden, um, you're less secure in your ownership of land. You're less secure in your ownership of uh, financial assets. It's harder to contract because of either high taxes, more regulations, or the courts just don't honor contracts as much. Uh, for whatever reason, or the state government is empowered, or the local government is empowered to confiscate land under much you know lower burdens um, than currently, and this will sort of have much bigger effects than whether you know it's more difficult to buy wheatgrass or or coffee at the local coffee shop. Um, this will affect sort of every single economic exchange that occurs. It will affect the productivity of every worker hypothetically. It will affect whether a society like the United States, can maintain its high level of uh, standard of living. And this is something that I, I think is one of the potentially better criticisms against my position of immigration, is that these institutions seem to be kind of fragile that we have, these sort of productive institutions. Um, and if they are fragile, then we should try to not have policies, like, say, maybe you know, liberalized immigration, that could upset them. If, those, if the upsetting of these policies could lead to their degradation and if immigrants can undermine them. So this is sort of like the point, you know, it's like the point of our giant book about this, right, is if that were true, that would be a great argument against immigration. And then we take a look at it in all these different case studies. We take a look at the best evidence that we have. And we find that, um, you know, in, in every situation that we look at, by every measure that we take a look at, In this book, immigrants either don't undermine um, at all the institutions, the economic and political institutions of the areas where they go, or they actually improve them in some cases through some some methods that we sort of hypothesize about, some mechanisms that we hypothesize about.
0: It seems like a lot of this critique would depend on why immigrants come here, because if you're choosing to leave your country, and particularly if you're leaving a poor country, and as we discussed, the poor countries are poor for a reason, and a lot of it is because they have bad institutions or missing institutions. It would seem odd for immigrants to say this country was bad enough that I want to even even in an era of, you know, easy travel and, you know, easy communication across borders and all of that it is still very costly and time-consuming and disruptive to change your country of residents. It seems odd that they would think these problems were bad enough to undertake those costs just to come here to undertake steps that would make this country look more like the one that they just left.
1: It does seem odd, right? Um, Of course, you know, politics is more of a collective action problem rather than an individual one. So like in the same sense that earlier in this conversation, you said, um, you know, people don't get those feedback mechanisms that they have silly opinions. So they might maintain those opinions for a long time. Um, So so that's sort of the counter argument to what you're talking about. But, uh, you know, a lot of people just don't seem to be uh, so enamored by the places where they're born that they want to recreate them everywhere they don't necessarily know how to recreate them everywhere and they don't you know they don't necessarily want to right so if you're a pakistani immigrant to great britain you may not want to create sort of the cityscape and institutions of pakistan it might just be enough for you that you can eat pakistani food uh, with your pakistani family um, and occasionally go to a pakistani restaurant like that might just be enough for you uh, to get sort of the, the, the joys of that. And then you can talk with your Pakistani family back in uh, Pakistan and, and Urdu. Um, so that might be enough for you, right? Like you don't, I don't need like a package good. Um, like there are some things that I miss about California where I'm from. Um, and almost all of them I can get out here in Virginia and, um, you know, uh, unbundled packages uh, without having to deal with the higher taxes, uh, gun regulation, other nonsense of living in California. The only thing I can't really get is good Mexican food. Um but I'm trying I'm working on that.
2: <laughs> this this is true. But but a lot of people Alex would be saying as you know and and maybe we'll be telling you on Twitter later you're being sort of willfully naive about the real problem. Sure, maybe Pakistanis in the UK just want, you know, to be able to go to the mosque and have some Pakistani food, but seemingly some of them want to become terrorists and seemingly some of them want to take things down. And and one thing you hear from conservatives all the time, ones who actually maybe do believe in immigration, let's say, you know, who take the old Ronald Reagan line, but they will say something like, um, I'd rather have America's immigration problem than Europe's. And it seems like Europe is a kind of a standing argument against almost everything that you're saying in terms of how dangerous immigrants can be and changing different neighborhoods and changing cultures away from where they were.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's right, and there's a lot of commentary about that. I mean, there are problems, right, in the in Europe related to immigration. Most of them have to do with the institutions in these countries related to welfare, labor market regulations, etc., which were created in times without any immigration into Europe. Um, and have since sort of run against them. So as a result, a lot of immigrants just don't have the experience of working in the labor market because they're not allowed to by law, and that's a lot of problems. But we also ignore a lot of the, the positives, and we sort of tend to exaggerate the danger. So for instance, like in 2017, um, in France, the chance that you'd be killed in a terrorist attack is about 1 in 22 million that year in France. In Germany, it was about 1 in 82 million uh, in the United States, it was higher at about one in 19 million. Um, and in that year, it was almost all um, Islamic, uh, Islamist immigrants who were in, in all these countries who were foreign born, who were committing these attacks. So, you know, judge on that level, the United States actually looks a little bit worse, <laughs> worse than um, uh, a lot of these European countries um, in that way. Now, there's a lot of variation year by year. Uh but those are also very small chances annually of being murdered. Uh, you know, I, 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 for instance, said like the in, the in the United States, it's one in about 19 million per year uh, in, nine, in 2017 annual chance of being murdered in a terrorist attack. The annual chance of being murdered in a normal homicide was about one in 25,000 that year. So we're talking about order of magnitude about 100 times or so larger than that of uh, just being killed in a homicide. So that's... You know, these dangers are pretty low. Terrorism is not the great risk to our institutions or to our country that people make it out to be. That's not to say terrorist attacks aren't brutal and bad and need to be punished and deterred. Uh, They absolutely need to be. But as an argument for ending or diminishing immigration, they really uh, don't pass the smell test.
2: Well, aside from the terrorism, though, the other issue I think is brought up is, is just lack of assimilation which maybe is true that the, the, a lot of the Middle Eastern Arab population coming into European countries are not assimilating. But it seems like sometimes that's the destination country's fault.
1: Sometimes, yeah. Um, of course, the immigration in Europe is also pretty new, um, right? It's, it's basically since the 1960s uh, in most of these cases. And when you take a look at like the third generation Turks, for instance, the, uh, the, the Turkish immigrants and their kids in uh, Germany – um, they're actually doing quite well in the third to fourth generation uh, in terms of speaking German, in terms of considering themselves German, in terms of their educational and job um, access in the country. And part of that is due to the fact that Germany has reformed a lot of its laws. Uh, you know, Germany used to have this system where you basically couldn't get citizenship. Uh, it'd be very difficult, uh, to get citizenship if you were born in Germany unless all of your ancestors were German. And they changed this around the year 2000. A lot of ethnically Turkish Germans got citizenship and they, um, you know, very rapidly rose in terms of their language acquisition, whether they considered themselves German, whether they read German newspapers, sort of all these different measures of being German, um, culturally. Um, big improvements on this. And what's, what's fascinating is when the Syrian refugees went to Germany in large numbers, beginning around 2015, 2016, a lot of the commentary in Germany suddenly switched from, well, Turkish immigrants and their descendants have done fine, uh, but these new Syrian ones, I think it's not going to work out too well. So there are different issues and there are more issues in Europe, right? But I don't think we should be blind to the fact that it's actually going a lot better um than what people realize and part of the reason why it doesn't appear to be going as well as it does as as it really is is because it's so new right it'd be like comparing just you know immigrants in the united states who have come since 1970 and their descendants whereas we have hundreds and hundreds of years of immigration uh to look back on europe doesn't have that yet uh but it's gaining it and it seems to be going you know okay it's not a disaster it's not as good as the united states but, you know, it's it's not fundamentally overturning European economic institutions. There's some evidence that it seems to be changing them in some, uh, you know, more cosmopolitan, more liberal, classically liberal directions.
0: I want to go back briefly to the terrorism question, because I think there might be a worry that you are underselling the dangers of terrorism. So we look at, say, September 11th, when 19 people killed 3,000 people, which is not a lot in a city of, as a percentage, in a city of, I think, 18 million at the time. So your, you know, your chances of being killed by a terrorist attack, even on September 11th, 2001, were relatively small. But that one, terrorist attacks tend to have much larger impacts than regular homicides do. And so we watched in the 20 years since a dramatic change in America's institutions, largely for the worse. Arguably, the rise of Trumpism is related to what happened then. Like, it had huge, the war in Iraq, it had it had huge negative effects, much more so than if there had just been 3,000 homicides in New York City. And, and so those costs would seem to say, yeah, maybe the chances of terrorism aren't great, but the damage that a single terrorist attack does is so large that we should consider the dangers worse than individual deaths.
1: Yeah, and I think there's, you know, there's some evidence for that. But I think the danger in that situation is the government's response to the terrorism rather than the terrorism itself. So whether the immigrants themselves are going to fundamentally change American institutions, uh, does somewhat depend, of course, upon how Americans respond to the immigration or respond to the terrorism. Uh, but that is something that is more so in our control than is, um, you know, the opinions of the immigrants um, themselves. And if that's the problem, right, the solution is not to react in the way that we reacted after 9-11, but instead to be calmer, more circumspect and, and, and to not, uh, you know, invade Iraq, pass the Patriot Act and do all this other stuff uh, that was so bad. So there have been numerous terrorist attacks in a lot of these countries. Uh, in, in France, for instance, at the Bataclan, that large terrorist attack there several years ago. And their response was to reduce um, from freedom of speech protections in France and uh, in order to try to root out more um, Islamic extremism. And I think that is the exact wrong approach. If you are worried about immigrants undermining institutions in your country – uh, due to terrorism, I think one of the things to do is to not overreact to terrorism uh, by reducing your freedoms in the meantime. Then you're sort of, in that situation, it's not the immigrants causing the, the destruction in our freedom and liberty. It is the U.S. government or the French government, whatever government it is, uh, doing so because the majority of native-born people in these countries uh, want to restrict freedom in response to some actions taken by a small number of foreign-born people.
2: One of the more fascinating uh, arguments I've heard you make, which I find extremely compelling, but it kind of fits into it's – not it's a little counterintuitive, but it fits into this whole motif, is that you have argued that over the course of the 20th century in particular, that the restrictions on immigration between 24 and 65 in particular – contributed to the growth of the state, that actually open immigration can create more libertarian, more more at least classical liberal policies on the outcome, including labor policies and taxes and things like this, uh, which might surprise a lot of people. How, How does that argument work
1: I'll set it up in this way. Right. It's it's the idea on the other side is that immigrants are very supportive of socialism, of big government. So if we have just more immigrants come into the United States, then that will sort of mechanically just lead to more political support for big government. And as a result of this, we're going to have a larger government in the United States. And what we found is when we take a look at, say, proxy measurements for economic freedom, which would be something like federal spending as a percentage of GDP, we found a strong inverse correlation, meaning that government growth, growth in the size of government, federal government, is a lot slower or even zero during times when the border is more open and much larger when the border is closed. So from this period of sort of the early 1920s to the late 1960s, when the border was practically closed in the United States, that's when the size of government increased dramatically and vastly in the United States. That's where size of federal expenditures as a percent of GDP went from something like you know four to five percent to you know uh, in in about late 1960s about 20 percent. Of GDP, So you see a vast increase there in terms of real spending uh, in the United States as a percentage of GDP, in exactly the period of time when immigration is the most closed. So all the correlations go against the idea that somehow more immigration leads to support or, or even larger government in practice. While prior to 1920, when immigration was basically open borders with Europe and much of the rest of the world, not East Asia, but much of the rest of the world, Growth in the size of the federal government was flat or shrank even slightly. Since 1970, the size of the federal government, measured by expenditures as a percent of GDP, has remained about flat uh, since then. It's, it's increased by about a percentage point, uh, but not by much uh, during a time when immigration is more open. And this we'll is exempt something the, that, we'll
2: exempt the pandemic from some of that spending, I guess. <laughs> yeah, this overall. goes through.
1: Yeah, this goes through like 2018. Right. So I uh, unfortunately, the book came out um, in the middle of the pandemic. So we couldn't.
2: (laughs) But overall, uh, it hasn't gone up as much. Yeah,
1: hasn't gone up with that. And and interestingly, by the way, the borders have been closed during the pandemic. So that might even be some more evidence uh, in our in our favor. And part of the reason is that there's several different theories about why this is true. You know, one is that welfare states around the world tend to be very homogeneous, ethnically, religiously, racially and socially homogeneous. And there might be a psychology story there where they uh, you know, people really want to help out um, others if they're poor, if they sort of look and sound like them, they make excuses for people who look and sound like them. So they're more supportive of welfare. That's one possibility. And, and, and that would mean, of course, that more immigration and more people who are diverse really undermines political support for immigration, uh, for welfare and government benefits. So that's one possible answer. Um
2: undercutting undercutting labor unions seems like a good, good well that's thing yeah too. And that's
1: the one that i am sort of most in favor of that we really take a look at in this book is that we think you know a lot of support for you know organization for growth in the size and scope of government comes from labor unions and there's all this research that shows like once people join a labor move, move union they become more left-wing than if they wouldn't have joined one uh, they just mechanically become more – not mechanically, but they sort of become aware of the propaganda. Uh, they organize more successfully for more government spending and more welfare. And one of the things we know for sure is that immigration really undermines the growth of labor unions. It really kills labor unions. So the thing that I, I think is a twofer, right, is that – or it's a, a threefer, I guess – um, is that immigration increases economic productivity in the United States, increases the number of people making a lot of things. It seems to lower the growth rate or at least flatten, or maybe even flatten growth in the size of the federal government. And it does it by killing unions, which are the most effective organizations lobbying for the expansion, of the size of government. So this is sort of the theory that, that we come up with and we try to quantitatively develop in uh, chapter 9 of our book, is the reason why the United States has better institutions than so many other countries um, is partly because the pressures that seek to undermine these institutions, primarily through labor unions, are killed by immigration and the result in diversity, which makes it much harder for labor unions to organize.
0: Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.